Well, good morning. I'm delighted to be sharing God's word with you this morning, and I trust and pray you had a joyful, joyous, and worshipful Easter. Well, you know, we know the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and its promise of new life stands as the climactic event in all of history. And it's his redemptive love that gathers us in worship and sends us out as a called and gifted body of Christ to serve him wherever we are. As a response to all that Jesus has done for us, the church and each congregation is called to ask and answer, how well is the church faithfully living out her divine purpose? How well are God's people demonstrating the reconciling love of the gospel and equipping others to engage the world in which we live? Well, in our passage of scripture this morning, the Apostle Paul shares Christ's masterful design for his church in each generation. So as we read and study his word, will you pray with me? Lord, we know that these are your words written by the inspiration of your spirit. And we know only you can use them to change and transform us. How we thank you for the chance to gather as your people to praise you. May our time together bring you only glory and praise and honor. For it's in your unfailing name we pray. Amen. Well, a pastor friend of mine shares the most marvelous story about a man named Russell Herman. And by all accounts, Mr. Herman led a very simple and ordinary life as a carpenter from St. Louis. And when he died, his children gathered to celebrate his life. And then a few days later, they found themselves in an attorney's office for the reading of his will. But the family was quite shocked to learn that shortly before his death, Mr. Herman arranged to gift $2 billion to the city of East St. Louis for housing, infrastructure, and road repair. He gifted another $2 billion to the National Forestry Service. But perhaps the oddest entry was the one he gave to the, to the federal government for debt retirement. Now, as the will was read, the family sat there in disbelief, primarily because they had no idea their father had amassed this much wealth. And, oh, by the way, none of it was left to them. And the attorney, sensing the confusion and tension in the room, interrupted the silence and said, There is a problem with the will. I have done a careful review of all of Mr. Herman's assets and estimate his net worth to be $546.32. That's a true story. Now, I have no doubt that Mr. Herman wanted to share gifts that would somehow show others that his life had meaning and purpose and ultimate value. He wanted to lead a worthy life. And in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul shares the gifts that Christ gives 
to empower his church. And these gifts are a part of his divine design, which bring ultimate meaning and purpose and value as they both build the body up and offer the world a picture of Jesus. So it's always helpful as we begin to unpack and give a little context to unpack what's happened before our scripture. And we know that the Apostle Paul is writing from a Roman prison cell. And unlike other letters he's written to specific churches facing specific challenges, the content of this letter is more general in nature. And so it's thought to have originally intended to be delivered first to the church in Ephesus and then circulated and read by the surrounding churches in Asia Minor. And it's also helpful to note, in the Greek it's written in the plural sense, meaning it's written to the entire church community. And it's sometimes hard for us in our Western culture and individualistic mindset because Paul writes, you know, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I encourage you, I urge you to live a life. And we read this individually. But everyone there in the room would have known that Paul is speaking to the church family. And this would have meant everyone, Jew and Greek, slave and free, man and woman, perhaps children. Everyone who was a part of that church would have heard this letter. Now, in the opening chapters, Paul has just expounded on some of his loftiest theological reflection that we find in the entire New Testament. And in fact, he writes that he's sharing never before revealed mysteries made known to him by the risen Christ. And these never before shared mysteries have cosmic consequences that would have been shocking new new revelations to those first century readers and those first century hearers. And the first revelation, was, which is actually something that you hear from this pulpit quite a bit, but remember, it would have been a shocking new reality for those in first century. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first revelation is that at the very heart of the gospel, God's salvation, his love, is not for those who keep all the rules, who do everything great and lead a pretty good life. No. God's love, his salvation, is not a reward for the righteous, but is actually new life for the spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verse 8 reads, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so this revelation, as Paul understands it, upends all kind of self-righteousness and arrogance all sorts of superiority. And it was a shocking revelation. And a second revelation that would have been equally as shocking is that God's plan through the gospel of Jesus is not merely saving disembodied individual souls out of a material world. No. Paul explains in Christ, God's plan is to renew this entire world And everything in it by creating a new humanity that is both reconciled to God and reconciled to neighbor. Where centuries old divisions between Jew and Gentile no longer exist. 
scripture in Ephesians 2 says it this way. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. And finally, in chapter 3, we learn that as a part of this masterful divine design, this masterful plan that God has to bring everything in the conformity with the purpose of his will, is that Jesus chose the church to be his instrument in the world, to be a visible representation of all he has done and all he will do. And so chapter 3, verse 10 reads, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. Cosmic consequences, right? According to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus. And so after all of this lofty theological reflection, the Apostle Paul moves us now to practical application. It's as if he's saying, if you believe everything I've shared with you, then this is how you'll live. It's a therefore kind of moment. And Ephesians 4 begins, I, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And throughout this passage, what we see here is that Paul presents three gifts Now, when I was a little girl, I had a Sunday school teacher that taught me, whenever you see the word gift, substitute it for grace. And whenever you see the word grace, substitute it for gift. And it helped my young mind understand that all gifts are grace from God. And all grace is a gift to humanity, yes? And so there are three gifts presented in this passage. And the first is the character and the unity of Christ. The second are the diversity of the gifts that Christ gives to empower his church on mission. And finally, at the very end, by his grace, when the body is working by divine design, the world gets to see a picture of Jesus. So the character and the unity of Christ, the diversity of gifts, and the fullness of Jesus. These are the gifts of grace that Christ, that Paul shares as a part of Christ's masterful plan for his body. So first, the character and unity of Christ. Chapter 4 opens, Prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And the rest of the chapter, he's basically answering the question, how does the church live a life worthy of the calling, the effectual call of God in her life? How does she do this? And he immediately points us in verse 2 to the character of Christ. He says, be humble, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. As we consider this person of Jesus, the beauty of his life, the truth of his claims, each gospel writer goes out of his way to portray Jesus as humble and true, 
compassionate and just. He lives such a life of love, disruptive love. Everyone in congregation must ask themselves in all of our comings and goings, in our worship and programs and Bible studies, in our meetings and missional communities, is the character of Christ being formed in us? And personally, do the people who know and love you best, do they see this humble character of Christ being formed in you and growing year after year? And so what the Apostle Paul says in this opening few verses is that the church is not only called to know the lofty purposes of Christ, she's called to live them out. She's called to live out his humble character. Now, verse 3 is closely related. How does the church live a life worthy of the calling she's received? And in verse 3, he answers, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, we're going to see the Trinity is mentioned here. There is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, that effectual call in your life, when you were called one Lord, Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, of all, who is over all and through all in all. You see, a church will live a life worthy of her calling when she is grounded in the person and work of Christ. The first confession of the early church was Jesus Christ is Lord. And you can be sure that a church who believes that Jesus Christ is Lord is living in his divine design. You can make no mistake that they know to whom they belong. And they know that they are the body because Jesus Christ is the head One author writes, if all the church did was to focus on these six verses, everything else would fall into place. Jesus Christ is Lord. Leslie Newbegin, a British theologian and missionary, grew up in Britain, but was ordained in the Church of Scotland. And in a young life, as a young man, he felt the call to go overseas as a missionary And so he led a life in India for over 30 years. And when he was older, he came back home. And what he saw, he was so disappointed. He writes about this. He's like, I go away and I see that the church has lost so much influence. Our churches seem to be so self-sufficient and complacent. And he wrote, the best hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation who believes it. For when a congregation is motivated by the love of Christ and she moves out on mission, she offers a picture in a compelling love of Jesus that is hard to get. It's hard to uh, ignore. So the first gifts of grace that become a mark of the church for Paul is the character and the unity of Christ. And then secondly, the Apostle Paul presents the diversity of gifts beginning in verse 7, but before we actually get to the individual gifts, he takes us on this little interlude, and you might be tempted to kind of gloss over this little interlude, a lofty theological reflection, 
But I hope you don't, because in it he has something important to teach us about the finished work of Christ. He's referencing Psalm 68, 18. And he says first, but to each one of us, grace or gifts have been given as Christ apportioned it. Who apportions the gifts? Christ. Good. Do we get to decide the gifts? No. And then he goes into that little interlude. Verse 8 through 10. This is why it says when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean that he except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. What does he mean here? You see, he's speaking of the ascension, Christ's ascension to the Father. He's speaking of the ascension gifts that were rained down to his body. And I can't help but think of that high priestly prayer in John 17, where the disciples overhear, or at least John overheard, Jesus praying to the Father, I'm coming home. I've done everything you've asked me to do. And then he asked for prayer for himself, glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. He did everything the father asked him to do. And when and when he's coming home, we're reminded of what that work was. You see, it says he's ascended to the lower earthly regions. And what Paul is speaking of with the captives and led men on train and gave gifts. He's talking about the fact that he fought and won and conquered and was victorious over sin and Satan, death and hell. You see, Christian, what keeps, I've thought a lot about this, what keeps the church from living the gifts that Christ gave? Paul uses the words intentionally. He's a prisoner, which we've already established. But I think there's more there. You see, he's a man sold out on the mission of Jesus. And I ask you, what are you a prisoner of this morning? What's holding you captive? Are you still caught up in what others think of you or ambition and achievement? Or perhaps, you know, you build your identity about what you have. And Jesus says, you don't have to live that way. I fought the good fight and I finished it. And as he ascended to the Father, he rains down gifts. So it's not completely clear, but somehow he mentions that it must be intimately connected to the finished work of Christ. That's how valuable these gifts are. They were hard fought and won for you. Don't ignore them. Don't ignore them. The ascension gifts are irrevocable. And I'm sure Mr. Herman had good intentions. But in the end, his gifts lacked meaning, right? Lacked value. So now finally, in verse 11 and 12, Paul begins to name the five gifts. And he specifically names them. He said, they are apostle, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors. Some translations call them shepherds and teachers. And so... Interestingly, Paul uses the metaphor of a human body. 
perhaps because its design is meant to be collaboratively used and an interdependent body, right? Where these gifts are used collaboratively and interdependently. And so one way to think about the gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelism, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, APEST for short, is to think of them as functions or systems, these gifts of grace that Christ rains down to each generation until he comes again. All five are needed to be healthy and grow to maturity and fullness. Now, before I had access to the Internet as a young girl, I wasn't able to just research anything I wanted to. I was a student, and I had a world book encyclopedia, a set. How many of you have those, too? And yes, I'm a geek. I really enjoyed my world book encyclopedia set. And I remembered the human body outline, and I was fascinated with those little cellophane see-through pages that you would turn over the outline of a body And you'll remember that the first page you turn down and it's the skeletal system and then there's the muscular system and the neurological system and the endocrine system and doctors in the room are probably cringing because I I probably have that all out of order. But you get the idea that when all of the functions are down, you begin to get an idea of the complexities and the marvelous design of the human body by a creator God. And Paul intentionally uses this metaphor of a body for this reason. He must share that these gifts rain down to every believing heart when used like a body lives in his divine design and lives worthy of the calling they received. And so let's look quickly at these gifts. Apostles. Now we know that there were 12 apostles. When Judas didn't work out so well, they uh, elected a new a new man, right? And then the Apostle Paul, who met the risen Christ and his life was changed, he fought his apostleship. We see it through his letters, almost probably his entire ministry. But he was also divinely appointed by the Savior. And all of these apostles, as mentioned in the early chapters of Ephesians, are the foundations of the church. There are no more new revelations. The New Testament is now complete. So in the first sense of the word, the apostles do not exist. And yet the function, the apostolic function, to pioneer and take risks, to bring the light of Christ where there is darkness, to be innovative, to be able to mobilize Others towards a common goal are very much needed in every congregation, one church, every congregation to serve him. These are the entrepreneurial gifts. They are also the guardian of the DNA of the church. They remind the body is only the body because who is the head? Jesus. Yes. These are the kind of people that look at a Hollis Academy and go, We could bring the light of Christ and he or she mobilizes shepherds and teachers and evangelists to come around and love that school, right? Or how about the summit? The one Sunday life group in particular sees the summit as a mission field. What would look like good news there? Prophet. 
just like apostles in the first sense of that word, there are no more prophets. These were men that lived in the Old and New Testament, divinely appointed by God to share the authoritative truth of God. And the New Testament and the Old Testament are complete. But the second sense of the word, the prophetic impulse to call people to pray, to repent, this is the function that is very concerned with the body living in the covenant faithfulness of God. They often call the church together to fast and pray before big decisions are made, not afraid to point out the injustices and the hypocrisies in the body. Prayer and covenant faithfulness are the buzzwords in their heart. Evangelist. These are the ones who stand on the front gate and have never met a stranger. Come and see what the Lord has done. Think of Andrew. Now, you know, depending on your upbringing or background, evangelists may have a very negative uh, connotation. But just take our cues from scripture. We see Andrew cannot wait to have his brother Peter meet this Messiah. The woman at the well. Come and see what the Lord said to me. They're so excited what Jesus has done in their life. They want to share it and they know the story of God well. Shepherds, you know these gifts. They're very attuned to the needs, the compassion needs of, of a congregation. Very attuned to the suffering. And they have gifts of compassion and mercy and comfort and sustenance. And they call the church to circle her wagons and care for her for her own. They're also on the front lines too, the first to go see a neighbor who's lost a spouse, whether they know Jesus or not, right? And finally, teachers. Teachers are especially equipped to study the word deeply and are gifted to make those truths clear and accessible to the rest of the body. They care deeply about grounding the body in scripture. Paul's letter to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. And so as you can see, all five functions are needed. When anyone is missing, the body is compromised. She's endangered of not living into her divine design. And finally, we've talked about the character and the unity of Christ as Paul presents And then we looked at the diversity of gifts. And finally, for what purpose? You see, this is why it's such a brilliant, masterful design, divine design. Because when the church knows who she belongs to, knows to whom she serves, sends out her people to worship God and to be his hands and feet in Christ, Two things, verse 12 tells us. First, to equip his people for works of service so that the body may be built up. And that word equip is even better translated as men restore or heal. When the church on mission, living according to her calling, understands as she's sent out, it's both Growing up the body, building up the body in maturity, passing that baton, the teacher who's always looking for who God is calling, training up the shepherd, the PVM, the pastoral visitation minister. Right. 
I'm going to do a home communion. Come with me. Right. Always looking how to equip the body of Christ so that she may be faithful in the next generation. And then finally, in verse 13, Paul asks, at what point, how do we do, how long do we do this? And look at what this measuring point is. Verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. What's God's measuring point for his church? How does the church equip herself? By focusing on the love of Christ. By focusing on the love of Christ is all that is needed to be equipped with obedient hearts, teachable hearts, ready to serve him in the world. And when they do, they present a picture, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Because wrapping up in the end, all the church has to present is Jesus, the perfect apostle. The one that said, go make disciples. All that Jesus has to offer the world, excuse me, all the church has to offer the world is Jesus, the perfect prophet. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. All the church has to offer this world is Jesus, the perfect evangelist. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. All we have to offer this hurting world is Jesus, the good shepherd. I am the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. And finally, all we have to offer this world is Jesus, the perfect teacher. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you till the end of the age. O church, arise. Are you living in his divine design? In the end, how we get there is to focus on the love of Christ. May you be found faithful as you serve him and worship him with the gifts he has given each of us to empower his body so that the world will see a picture of Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this passage in the book of Ephesians. We end with this prayer from Paul. For this reason, we kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives your name. We pray that out of your glorious riches that you will strengthen us with the power through the Spirit in our inner being. So that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we will be rooted and established in love. And have power together with all of God's holy people. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses all knowledge. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.